Welcome back to the Healthy ADHD Podcast. I am your host, Liz Lewis. The Healthy ADHD Podcast is still a place where I want to talk to the most interesting people living and working in ADHD. As you can tell, I am really struggling with some of the tech stuff around having a podcast, but I've decided that the tech is not as important as the content itself. So let's just get on with it, shall we? Today's guest is someone that I have wanted to reach out to for a long time. I finally worked up my nerve and I did it. I have with me today Dr. Russell Ramsey. He is the co-director of the Adult ADHD Treatment and Research Program and an associate professor of clinical psychology and psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania. You've probably heard of him. He's pretty well known in our circles. Dr. Ramsey was very generous with his time, so I've decided to take this long recording and make it into two different podcast episodes. Today, you're going to hear our first, the first part of our conversation. When I contacted Dr. Ramsey, I kind of went at it from the angle of his new book, Turning Intentions into Actions. And so to start, you will hear us talk about why it is very hard as a person with ADHD to develop a sort of positive self-image, why that is so difficult, the emotional underpinnings of that. You will hear us discuss why this leads to a sense of self-distrust and self-mistrust. You'll hear him talk about the history of cognitive behavioral therapy. We're also going to talk a lot about the concept of self-regulatory efficacy or our confidence in our ability to attend to all the details and do it over the long term so that we can meet a desired goal. Dr. Ramsey will explain the connection between our emotions and our ability to actually take action. He will give us some absolutely killer examples of this. This is a really long episode, but it's also really important for anyone who wants to better understand the interplay between ADHD, thoughts, and emotions. So let's just get this party started. I give you Dr. Russell Ramsey. Welcome to the Healthy ADHD Podcast, Russ Ramsey. Liz, thanks for having me. I was really nervous. I actually mentioned this to you beforehand. I was nervous to approach you. I don't know. I, I always get nervous when I have to approach people where I like their work or I admire what they're doing and putting out. So I get super nervous. And I'm, again, thank you for doing it, giving me the time. <laughs> well, I'm such, I'm such an intimidating personality. So yeah. <laughs> well, maybe it's on. No, I, I, no, I appreciate it. I like, I like sharing and hearing that somebody's interested in the work. It's still, it's very uh, touching. Good, good. Well, I think a lot of people do appreciate your work. I bought both books and I'm not a therapist either. I should, I should add that. I'm not a therapist, but I bought both books because I just found them so insightful and I was able to share it with my, my people. So, okay, first thing, I always ask everyone this question first. Can you tell me, did you always know you were going to be a psychologist? And what was your interest in ADHD specifically? Psychology really came, I was an undeclared major in college. And it was really, I think, second semester, freshman year, I had a biological basis of behavior course. And I sort of went, this is cool. And so I took like three psychology courses the next semester and said, I think this will be interesting for a long time. Um, and so I became a psych major. 
Um, and, you know, I, I just share this to say it's not this smooth road. Um, there's this pesky thing about being a psych major. If you want to be a psych, actually a practicing psychologist or researcher, you got to go to grad school. It took me my third try. So I had, and this is old school, two years of getting the skinny envelopes from all the graduate programs. So really it was the third year where I finally got admitted. So I think one thing I have going for me in my career, I'm always feeling like I'm trying to catch up those two years. So I do have a sense of saying yes to stuff like this and other things. And, and so that got me on the road for psychology. And in terms of ADHD, it was not anywhere on my radar screen. So I ended up uh, as a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Cognitive Therapy at the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Aaron Beck's clinic, you know, father of, it's like the, um, the Center for Cognitive Therapy uh, is to cognitive therapy what the Grand Old Opry is to country music, if you will. ADHD was not on my radar screen. I probably had all the same misconceptions as anybody else in the mid-90s. March 8th, 1999, Dr. Tony Rostain, a psychiatrist at Penn, my now common co-author, approached me. He was a very, well, still is a very noted psychiatrist in Philadelphia, child psychiatrist at the time, um, but moved into adult psychiatry and said, hey, it seems like ADHD lingers into adulthood. It seems like there would be a call for an evidence-based clinical program. I could handle the medications. I get word that um, you, you've got a strong background in cognitive behavioral therapy. What do you think about starting a program? And sort of shrugged my shoulders and said, yeah, why not? And my line about Tony and me is everything interests both of us and we can't say no to work. So we just passed our 20th anniversary. Um, and that's how I got into ADHD. And I find it, I find it fascinating. One, there's a lot of effective treatments, combination treatments, medications, uh, the psychosocial treatment, CBT, and exploring other options. It really gets into how do we do stuff? How do we get ourselves to do the stuff that we don't want to do right now, but pays off down the long run? Um, I think one of the lines in the book I use, and I just hear it from clients, I know exactly what I need to do, but I just don't do it. Now, that's like sort of central to ADHD, but the thing about ADHD, it's a, a quantitative difference, not a qualitative difference, meaning um, somebody with bipolar disorder, a manic episode is a qualitatively different mood state than we typically have. Um, it's a misfiring of our normal emotional uh, capacity. Sorry, I can geek out on stuff. So you got to geek out here. Um, ADHD, it's familiar because it's a developmental syndrome. It's a delay uh, chronically behind in the development and the employment of the executive functions. So it seems familiar to a lot of people. Oh, yeah, it's hard for me to get started, too. But it, dif it differs in terms of the frequency and the magnitude and the difficulties encountered by individuals with ADHD. So a lot of the coping strategies can be helpful for anybody, but they're more essential for ADHD. And tell you what, I've gotten, working with folks with ADHD, I've gotten so much more efficient by working on and how do we, how do we get ourselves to do this stuff when we don't feel like doing it? So it's helped me out in my own life. So that's my long-winded story about how I got connected with ADHD. It just, I said yes at the right time to the right person. It's also how I got married. Actually, she said yes to me, so 
<laughs> it's her. It was my good judgment there, her poor judgment. So, <laughs> well, um, first of all, I want to say you're allowed to geek out because I mean <laughs> that's my favorite thing. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the reasons I love what what you do and the and the work you do is because I also like to geek out and because it it's so in line with the way we talk about ADHD in some of some of my private group settings. And that's why I got so excited. Well, it was, it was almost the title that got me first. I, I enjoyed the, for the orange book. <laughs> oh yeah. I enjoyed this one. But when I saw this one and I read the title and it said, rethinking adult ADHD, helping clients turn intentions into action. I thought, Oh, I was like, that's the story of my life. And we had been discussing in my groups, um, executive function and we talked about Barkley and we talked about uh, uh, Brown, Brown's model. Yeah. What it came down to every single time was sort of the, the confluence between the emotional dysregulation part of it and taking action of any kind, any kind of action, <laughs> like small actions, right. big actions, anything. Those two things together. And I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, this is it. So thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for the plug. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we love to geek out on science in, in my group. So the first thing, and I sent this to you in an email that I wanted to talk about before we even start this task initiation um, and activation type of stuff is I wanted to talk about some of this, I'm going to say emotional muck, um, this poorly developed sense of self that a lot of us have. And I wanted to ask you what your feelings were about why, why does that happen? Like, why do we start out as kids and we grow into adults that can't, that feel stuck, stuck all the time? You know what, um, and the emotions are a, a crucial piece, but let me start with a, like sort of a Google satellite view first, and then we can get down to street level. Yeah. Um, I, I think with the experience and, and, Man, all I've learned is from sitting across from a lot of people telling their stories and, and people at least uh, seeking out therapy and help through the program and assessment. And one of the more insidious things about ADHD and, and the executive functioning inconsistencies, it's not all or nothing, but it's, it, it just punctuates efforts. So things are going along okay, but then they stop or they don't get picked up again or there's a big gap or setbacks or whatever. So those recurring frustrations. So particularly if ADHD has gone undiagnosed for a long time, that makes many aspects of life, uh, especially the have-tos, more difficult for individuals with ADHD than not. Not that it's easy for anybody. Nobody likes homework, but individuals without ADHD are better able to get started earlier, get through in a predictable amount of time and get some sort of reasonably expected outcome from it. Okay, a B is about fair for that. Whereas individuals, uh, and I go back to a line by um, Dr. Steve, the late Dr. Steve Copps, um, one of the early experts in ADHD and adult ADHD, a physician down in uh, Georgia, but who said, you know, he had a, a, a lecture on adult ADHD entitled Twice as Hard for Half as Much. And I've still not heard a brief, that few number of syllables that just crystallizes 
what I've heard people describe in many different ways that it's not lack of effort. It is in some ways more effort than people uh, without ADHD say will devote to something. But without the guarantee of the outcomes or the inconsistent outcomes, sometimes it's great. Um, and this sort of, it's, it's a little spoiler alert, but it's where the, um, what crystallized for the self-mistrust, self-distrust conjecture about the main cognitive theme. It's, but I don't know if the same effort this time is going to get the same result. So that consistent inconsistency. So I think that is part of what results in down the road, not for everybody, but it's not uncommon, whatever we want to call it, lower or at least inconsistent self-confidence, self-esteem, self-efficacy, generally about the performance. However, we are not our grade. We are not our homework compliance percentage. We're not our occupation. But these things are not nothing, pardon the double negative. There's something in it for us. And as we go through adolescence and young adulthood into adulthood, more and more things we select. And so these are investments. And if they're not paying off and assuming, and this isn't everybody, sometimes people can make um, unrealistic decisions or have unrealistic expectations for things. But for the most part, people are making sound decisions Okay, I applied to this college. Their admission board admitted me. I had the, the background to meet the requirements, but then difficulties getting through um, or a job. And so this can lead to an erosion of sense of self because these are things we say, I want to give this a try and do it. And for most people, if they say, I made a fair effort and this wasn't a good fit, that can be disappointing, but most of us can deal with that. But then if we go, I don't think I ever put my best effort forward or it got so punctuated or I ran out of time. These are the things that can lead to that erosion of, again, sense of self, the self-esteem, some of those things I think you referred to in that note. Well, and I think it's like for me, I was actually, I had the benefit of being diagnosed fairly young. So in the mid nineties, actually. For me, it was always this sense of knowing that I could, I could do more and I could do better, but not knowing what to do to get there. Like I knew that I was capable of more and I just didn't know how to prove it. And I kind of felt like when I tried, like when I worked extra hard on the paper in college or whatever it was, I kind of got mediocre results or... I, and I always just felt like, why am I like working twice as hard as everyone else to get mm -hmm. by? And it was, right. it was really, it was really frustrating. And I was also in a gifted program in high school, which made it a lot of pressure because it was like, people thought it should be easier than it was. Right. By the time I was like in my twenties, I felt like I was going through the motions. That's what it was. Like I was doing a job that was easy for me to do because it was easy for me to do. And I wasn't particularly loving it, but I just did it. And then I don't know, like I just had a meltdown in my twenties basically. But I do think that there is this, this sense of like, I know I could do more. I know I am capable of more, but I just, I don't know what to do. And I've failed so many times or 
and I'm sure you've heard them talk about your clients talk about um, self self sabotaging almost behaviors. Um, you could be doing great first semester freshman year of college, and then come back after break and just something isn't there anymore. It's just not right anymore. Oh yeah, that that mid semester lag after the novelty or that pressure of the first graded and doing everything the right way and attending classes and it's sort of like, okay, this is good. And then it's sort of like, all right, that was a lot of work and you know what, maybe not every day and I can miss a class here and there. And it's really, and for any one of those things, it's probably true and, and most students probably go, okay, I can, I can ease off the accelerator a little bit. Um, and some students have more give in terms of how much they can do and still maintain. Everybody with ADHD is somewhat different, different talents, and there might be some things that, yeah, I have to work twice as hard on writing because that's not my thing, but over here, like a creative project, that's different, or the other person is writing's better than the creative project. Sort of a more of a, a razor's edge on how much give there is on either, either side before you start, you know, sliding, sliding downhill on mixing metaphors all over the place. So yeah, that's a very common that then it's just harder. And this sort of gets at the emotional piece. It's harder getting back to where it was, which objectively somebody says, I know I can do it, but I'm not doing it now. And then it's scrambling at the end or whatever that, uh, and, and then, you know, the other thing, too, about what you described as, well, it worked so hard getting through high school, then getting through the first couple of years of college, getting through college. That's one of my conjectures about why anxiety is such a common coexisting factor, because anxiety is an emotion that, you know, can trigger either avoidance or approach. And if the worry is about, well, I can't be late or I'm going to fail or have to retake the court. Well, that's a great motivator. But then as things get more difficult throughout school and the workplace at home, adult life only gets more complex and only layers on top of things. And then it requires more anxiety to get over the hump. Then at some point, the anxiety is its own mountain to climb. And then it's like, okay, now I'm anxious and falling behind. And now my anxiety is worse. It's like gasoline on fire. But it's because it takes a little more worry. Okay, I got to ramp it up for final exams. I got to ramp it up to graduate on time. And now it's the workplace where that's <clears throat> adult life is an endurance race. It's mm -hmm. a different pace. There's no spring break or end of the semester. It's, it's a long race. Nope. And then you're 41 like me and you look around at your, the, the people you grew up with and you're like, how did they get so far ahead of me in life? You know? Yeah. All right. Of them. right. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, first of all, can we define for anyone who's not sure self-efficacy? I feel like I know what it means, but I want to make sure I'm right. Right. <clears throat> um, I'll, I'll situate it in in terms of like and how I approach it. So, agency, personal agency, is the belief that you can do things that will have <laughs> presumably positive effects on your life. So that could be the belief in. Um, if there's something I'm interested in, I can get educated in it. Efficacy then is the belief in one's ability to follow through and on um, a more specific endeavor. Okay, I found something I'm interested in. Um, 
I want to be a dental hygienist. I think that would be a good career. I believe it sounds like this certification program is just what I need. It seems reasonable. The time works. I believe that I can do this. Um, then there's to complete it, and I, I talk about this in the book, there's a lesser renowned feature of efficacy. And in effect, efficacy, you can do, it, it could boil down to something that you set out to do, even therapeutic homework, exercise later today. Sitting here now, rate it zero to 10, 10 being the highest, 10 being a certainty, how likely do you think it is that you're going to do this? And once you get about eight out of 10, you're pretty reliably going to do it. I mean, that's just a, but I think it's supported by research. There is a, a lesser renowned feature, lesser known feature of efficacy called self-regulatory efficacy. So agency is I can get educated on something I'm interested in. Um, Self-efficacy is I believe I can complete the dental hygienist program. It's a good fit. It, it seems reasonable. Self-regulatory efficacy is the belief in one's ability. I can attend every class, hand in every homework assignment on time, study for and complete exams, um, pass, all uh, do any clinicals and meet, you know, hand in administrative paperwork. I can do all the details. I'm confident in my ability to do all the details. That seems to be the one that's weaker within ADHD and within the broader efficacy literature. And it's really, can you do the, the boring, difficult day in, day out scut work, um, the boring tasks, all the have tos that go into this broader goal that we want. I do a quote in the book attributed to Albert Bandura, the leading researcher in self-efficacy. Can you do all the scut work that you have to do to get to the end point? And that's why probably uh, research on it's done in, on exercise. We want the outcome of exercise. It would be really nice to have the outcome without doing it. I do it regularly, um, but it's still like, oh, it'd be so nice not to do it. The air conditioning's so nice up here, whatever. But it's how do you get over that and navigate that discomfort in order to get started? And we sort of know on the other side, hey, once I get started – that's easy, but that's, it's as small as the synapse, but feels as large as the Grand Canyon sometimes. Yeah, basically. Um, and also you describe almost every conversation I have with other, I, I talk mostly to women. So every conversation I have with women, that's basically the heart of everything that's going on with us. We don't always articulate it that well, but I think that's what's going on. And that's what's so frustrating there is there's this like underlying frustration all the time about this yeah right right self-regulate uh self-regulatory efficacy that's gonna have to be something that uh, i don't know words that we use more often i feel like well yeah and it's where in the book you know the reason for the book and, and i'll you haven't asked a question but i'll offer an answer yeah um where it came from, and I cover this in the introduction, uh, talk about procrastination. It was from a, a question asked probably at the first international conference uh, Tony Rostein and I um, did on our early incarnation of cognitive behavioral therapy for adult ADHD. 
Um, and it was other cognitive therapists. And it was really early days of it. I, we hadn't even done our study yet. I think there was maybe one chart review study at that point. And somebody in the audience after the lecture asked a very reasonable question. Is there a cognitive theme that you notice in the cognitions of adults with ADHD? And this gets at the notion within cognitive behavioral therapy, which if anybody's not familiar, familiar briefly, it's a form of talk therapy, but it emphasizes um, the role. It doesn't ignore other things, but what it brings to the table is emphasizing the role of cognitions, how we think about things, our automatic thoughts, what thought went through your mind when, and also some of our deeper held beliefs about how we are, what we can do, you know, safety, vulnerability, efficacy to a degree. You know, many of the cognitive distortions, the thinking errors are the same, but there are different themes like anxiety, at least at that time was threat and fear, even though now we know it's more the theme of uncertainty, which creates the fear and threat. I know it's probably gonna be okay, but you can't guarantee it. And that's why I, I, I would say ADHD and anxiety coupled together. I know I can do it, but I'm not sure if I can do it now. With depression, it's the theme of loss, of esteem, opportunity, things like that. And at that point, you know, we're just trying to make the case that cognitions even play a role with adult ADHD. And I sort of hemmed and hawed, but it stayed with me over the years. And there's been a lot more research on cognitions and ADHD in the last few years. And so I set out to you know, write the book proposing, and it's still a conjecture. Um, I think some studies are going to be done on it now about looking at what I propose is the self-distrust and mistrust themes for the automatic thoughts and the deeper beliefs, respectively. But I would propose that those are the main themes because they encapsulate, at least I make the case, the self-regulatory efficacy um, deficiency, if you will, or at least uncertainty. And within cognitive behavioral therapy, the mistrust thoughts and beliefs, generally, they are other-directed. Somebody who has a history, particularly with abuse survivors, particularly if it was um, a, a relative. So those who profess to love you the most end up hurting you the most. So we could say that that arises from, it's an adaptive safety belief in the setting in which it occurred, but later on, somebody's gonna be more prone at the first sign of difficulty within a relationship to say, okay, now I can't trust that person. They didn't return the text. They didn't show up on time. Even though there might've been some neutral, I lost my phone or you know, a, a hundred car train was going by and I was like 83rd in line waiting for this thing to pass. Nothing but emotionally, there's that response, uh-oh, trouble, danger. It's a self-preserving belief, at least in the context in which it arose. And I actually made the case, I introduced self-mistrust in the first edition of the CBT book, where it was really just from observation, but it really crystallized with the most recent book, where the thing about the self-regulatory efficacy and in one of Bandura's descriptions of it, talks about those who distrust their ability to do these boring tasks have no reason to put themselves through it, said more elegantly than I just did. 
No, but it is sort of that assessment. Why would I want to do it if this is going to be so hard and difficult and fruitless, at least at that moment, which leads people to say, okay, I'll get an extension. I'll worry about the homework tomorrow. I work best the night before. And if people can pull it off, great. But it is that, um, I think we used the phrase self-handicapping before. Now, it's not any sort of, and I say with all respect, um, Freudian conceptualization of it. It's like, now I have a history of this stuff being hard and right now I'm facing one of those again. I'm not sure if I can do it right now. Let me put it off till tomorrow when maybe I'll be in the mood to do it tomorrow and then I'll be able to get myself. So it is sort of a, a distorted positive thought. And Laura Naus and John Mitchell and Nate Kimbrell and Arthur Anastopoulos, I want to give them all credit, they actually came up with an ADHD cognition scale. It's a seven-item measure of, um, and they did re this was research-based, and I reference it in the book, and we use it in our program now. But it's seven items: distorted positive thoughts, um, being impulsive is a bit a big part of who I am. I work best at the last minute. I know this usually sucks me in, but I'll just do it for a moment. These sort of rationalizations, justifications for delaying something. Tell you what, we all delay things. We all procrastinate. And if we get back to it in a reasonable time, that is fine. For about 20% of people, procrastination becomes a – it actually starts causing life problems. And I would say – and I, I don't have any evidence for this, but I think it would be a fair hypothesis that ADHD is probably overrepresented in that 20%. Um, so going back to those self-mistrust thoughts are, you know what, rather than other directed self, I know I can do it, but I don't know if I can do it now. And the discomfort, the emotional discomfort that comes from that. And I, I mentioned before in our little chat beforehand that some recent re reading I was doing on just the roles of emotions. Emotions are what help us select what we want to do, what's important for us. Scary emotions as well. They can make us take action to reduce risks. Okay, this glass looks like it's going to fall off the table. I mean, this could be a little emotion, but yeah, maybe I better move that more to the middle of the table or put it someplace safe. Um, positive emotions, what we want to do. And that also gets tempered by our rationality because that the these emotions were developed when we had to act quicker and sometimes where the immediate prepotent response, the short, the smaller, sooner payoff is better because there may not have been a larger, later payoff. So in our evolutionary history, there was some impulse to act quicker. And then our executive functions, part of our you know, higher cognitive functions, if you will, are sort of like this checks and balances within politics of you know, it's almost like the House of Representatives is sort of like two-year terms and sort of more immediate stuff. But then the Senate, you have longer terms uh, to think longer range. Hey, is this treaty really what we want to sign on for? The same thing happens. Um, oh, behavioral investment theory. And this is covered in the new book. Oh, we make quick, largely non-conscious calculations on whether an activity is worth the time effort and energy it's going to require. So that's both the quick, what do I want? But that longer term goes through, 
yeah, but what's better in the long run? And the emotions are still quicker. And sometimes, especially with anxiety, thankfully so, it's better to mistake the garden hose as a, as a snake first and be wrong than to do the opposite, think it's a garden hose, then ends up being a snake. So it's a little better to have that negativity bias. Now, it can be overdone, but bringing back, there are going to be some things like about longer range behaviors where, yeah, exercise over the long term, getting homework done on time earlier on. We were not designed to do homework, but it's part of our 21st century world that we do have more of these longer range goals, retirement funds, things like that, where it is sacrificing the smaller sooner for the larger later, even though the smaller sooner from our past is still going to be attractive and we're going to have to fight that battle, unfortunately, but that's what the executive functions allow us, allow us to do. It's a uniquely human trait. So I want to start this task initiation stuff, which this yeah, behavioral investment theory fits right into that. It does. But I do have a question for you. Mm -hmm. And I think I emailed you about this. First of all, what comes first? Is it the emotions or the thoughts? Do the thoughts cause the emotions? Do the, like what? Because sometimes I think with ADHD, the way we think is 50% is of our problem. You know what? It's, it's, a, it's an interesting combination and it's a great question. <laughs> because you know what? But they developed together because the emotions helped us. I would probably argue that the emotions were there first. Um, and they helped us identify what had survival value. Then as we developed language and cognition, then we were able to use, you know, concepts, language, metaphors, ideas, aspirations to conceptualize some of what's most important. That way we can consider it earlier on, um, which is sometimes some of the cognitive work is anticipating like evaluation of a task. Why do you even want to do this in the first place? Let's get that out there first. So when the emotions come up, it's already there to say, oh, I don't want to do it. Yeah, yeah, but here's the reason to do it. So at least it's um, on the record. And then we can use some of those cognitive strategies as well, along with other acceptance strategies for recognizing we can feel something, but we're not mandated to follow that feeling in order, that's another way to manage and a phrase I ran across that I like, domesticate our emotions, not to make them go away. We should have them. We should have the capacity for joy. We should have the capacity for sometimes making at least, this will sound like contradictory, but some sort of reasoned irrational thought. I know I should study for the, um, the meeting tomorrow or the presentation, but I just got word, my roommate from college, flight got canceled, he's in town for dinner tonight. I'm gonna to go see my roommate who I haven't seen face to face. This might be a pre-COVID example. Tonight for dinner, even though I know I'll pay the price later, but then we can make adjustments. So there are many ways, I believe in multifinality, there are many ways to reach a positive outcome that are, you know, there's a diversity there, but the cognitive and the, the emotional came up together and work very closely together. So now we can have patterned uh, habitual thought reactions. 
where, and that's sort of what the schema do. So I mentioned the mistrust schema for somebody who might've been an abuse survivor, or let's just say was somehow, well, even going back to that, one of the facets of our ability to trust and part of the role emotions play in human relationships comes from reciprocal altruism. So even though, <laughs> this is getting not far afield, but one of the things that is hard to explain from that mindset is, well, why are we nice to other people who aren't our relatives? Well, over time as humans, and this is part of the argument about how we developed executive functions in the first place, it came from living in larger and larger groups of non-genetically related humans. Our family, our kids, we've got a genetic impairment. We will give our life for our children. Less so for you know, other people in the group. However, group lead living for early humans, if you were kicked out of the group, that was a death sentence. So there was some benefit in give and take. I'll help you, you help me, that reciprocity. Um, and building up a positive reputation. Now, with that, some people would say, well, if I can get everybody to help me and I don't help anybody else, then I end up better. Well, people, we had to come up with cheater detection. And so part of that is being able to discriminate whether somebody seemed trustworthy based on their behavior. And there was also an emotional sense that came from that. So even you know, so people, and it's sort of like this gamesmanship that happened in evolution. So then what happened is people got better at cheating. They could fake emotions, but subtly, like even a smile, different regions of the brain, when you have a genuine smile, something strikes you as funny or you see something pleasant, different regions of the brain are activated than if you fake a smile and some of the muscles are different. So we probably got better able to pick up on by reputation and some of these non-conscious things that we pick up emotionally about who we can trust and who we can't. Well, the self-mistrust is almost like our reputation with ourself. Um, and this is also why there can be low self-esteem about like, I know I can do it, but I can't get myself to do it. And that frustration that we, uh, somebody can have with themselves as well. So emotions were probably there first. The language and other things came up around that and these concepts that we have but they interact a lot. And sometimes the cognitions are just a useful way and behaviors are in there too, a way to break into the cycle. Okay, what were you thinking right before you procrastinated that made it okay? And there's probably emotions in there too, the emotion of UG that I describe in the book. And it's just more that I know I can do it, but uh, I don't feel like doing it. Maybe tomorrow. And that positive emotion associated with I'll do it after this. I'll delay and maybe I'll feel more like doing it later. So it is sort of like that distorted optimistic thought. And if we do it, that's fine. Um, but it's like when we fall into recurring patterns of not doing something and then paying the price for it, that's where it's really the pro problematic avoidance and procrastination. Well, I have another question for you about thoughts and I did email you about this. Um, yeah. I have seen in the last, I don't know, year or so, a lot of noise on social media from, now I wanna, I wanna be clear on this. These are not David Gork's ADCA coaches. There is another school of life coaching that talks a lot about thoughts. And they'll say yeah. things, and I've seen this on social media, and I get a little upset every time I see it, because sometimes they do direct it toward ADHD people. And they'll say, you just have to choose your thoughts. 
you find it if, if you figure out you know if you're thinking and it's making you feel bad um, if your emotions become involved and you're not taking the kind of action in your life that you want to take just choose a more useful thought and you, you know and, and that seems really simplistic to me when you're talking about right, right. a person who is very complex but i get upset every time i see this especially directed toward people with adhd because i feel like you can't just tell someone with adhd to control their thoughts basically take your thought get rid of it adopt a new thought and you'll feel life will be good what is your right, opinion right. on this <laughs> this you know, it, thoughts <laughs> you know it, it it's it's accurate but misleading okay just like if somebody asks you later hey how how was ramsey on the uh, the webinar well, great he was sober which is true um but the statement is accurate but misleading because the implication is, hey, uncharacteristically sober, which um, uh, yeah, I don't drink, but I just use that one. Um, so it would be pipe people like when we're talking about like, how do you implement plans? People say, well, this is, you're saying it's sort of like Nike, just do it. And it's like, yeah, that's jumping to the end point, but the pathway there is a lot more nuanced. So I think what we do is it is how do we break down and understand in the smaller incremental steps, how do we do it? I mean, it brings to mind, um, I'm a member of the American Psychological Association and their monthly publication is the APA Monitor. And I remember several years ago, they had an advertisement for an executive functioning questionnaire or scale. And part of the ad was, how do you make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? And it, they had like a list of like 49 steps that go into making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Now we could say, I'm going to go make a sandwich. And it's like one move if, you know, if it's not any sort of emotionally activating, I guess. But really it's 49 moves. And so somebody if goes, hey, I'm stuck. What, what is the first move? It might be, you know, get bread out of the fridge or something like that. I will always say, we all know this. This is the grandmother rules. Break a large task down into small steps, but it's the focus on how do you actually do it? What is the small step? And, and we know it, but sometimes we've not really done the small steps. So how I would qualify it, the role of the cognitions is we're going to have automatic in cognitive behavioral therapy, classic cognitive behavioral therapy, automatic thoughts. Now, CBT emerged as a first off a, a psychotherapy for depression. So the automatic thoughts, like if you, know you're, if you notice your mood going, becoming more depressed or yourself not doing something or something's shifting and something's just not right, ask yourself what, what thought went through my, look back to what started it, what was the triggering situation, what thought went through my mind. And in, in introducing automatic thoughts, Freud would have called these the pre-conscious, this running sort of play-by-play, -play, not in complete sentences, but sort of this, the thoughts just out of our awareness. Um, you know, stuff like throughout this, you might be going, you might be thinking, okay, check the clock. Uh, what do I have after this? Um, it's not like interrupting us, but it's there. And once we draw our attention to it, so I'll ask people if this was a pre-COVID world audience, how many people here talk to yourself inside your head? Usually about half, two-thirds of the audience raise your hand. 
And I say, those of you who didn't raise your hand, do you know what you're thinking? I don't talk to myself inside my head. Even if you say you don't do it, you're doing it. It's like, don't think about a pink elephant. You have to think about it, um, not to think about it. So we have it. We just maybe don't realize it. Most of it's neutral. But when it's getting in the way of something or we go, how did I get here? What did I intend to do? Did I have any, what was I thinking about doing it that might have led me to unload the dishwasher instead? How did, you know, sort of like that talking heads song, you know, well, how did I get here? We, we're going to have those thoughts and they can be useful clues for, okay, how did I justify this? And then we can analyze the situation and say, well, what do I want to do now? How do I handle it? And this can be do we adjust and say, we'll have to rework the thought somehow. So this gets to the cognitive modification. How do we analyze the thought uh, and reevaluate it? Um, so it's not going to be like necessarily like changing a light bulb. Oh, this one's out. Let's put this one in. Now, sometimes we can catch ourselves. Oh, I said this would only take a minute. It's taking more than a minute. Um, all right, let me get back to why I want to do that. Let me just sit down and get started on it. Now, that takes, uh, that takes more words and more effort than the automatic thought probably did. So in some ways, we, people will ask, will I ever not have these negative automatic thoughts? Positive thoughts can be distorted too, but I'll just say the unhelpful ones. No, I, I would make the argument, no, they'll probably always be there. Now, it doesn't mean we'll, we can get a lot better at catching them earlier on or getting better able to say, I set out a plan, it seems realistic, I'll do it after I do this, okay, this is over, maybe I get better at going from this to that, or like for me, I mentioned the exercise thing. No, it's pretty much a, a pivot point in my day where it's, you know, it's still effortful, but, sorry for the cracking voice there, it's still effortful, um, but, it's a little easier to navigate because I sort of know, you know what, I got some muscle memory. Let me just get down there, put on the playlist you want to listen to today and trick yourself into get, getting started. And people will ask, well, aren't these tricks for our brain? Absolutely. But all the other stuff that tricks us out of what we're doing or what we want to do, they're tricks too. So we're just trying to match it and exceed it. So there are ways that we can go through a process of modifying our thoughts to get them to be more adaptive. And there's also a variant of cognitive behavioral therapy or within the, the family of behavioral therapies called acceptance and commitment therapy. And I talk about this in the book. So as a counterpoint to cognitive modification, this, and this is an all too brief nutshell of a more elegant process, catching the thought, reanalyzing it, I use the analogy of what would your defense attorney, how would the def your defense attorney on your side argue the case, still bound by the evidence. You can't say, oh yeah, income taxes are really fun. You're gonna have fun once you get started. No, you still have to be realistic about it, but how can you re re rework the argument? Tell you what, you can at least do this for 10 minutes, see if you can get started on it, or it's okay to say, you know what, I'm not in the mood to do this. I'll set up a time to do it tomorrow. You can always, you know, run some sort of a plea bargain there. Acceptance and commitment therapy talks about cognitive defusion. All right, rather than trying to change the content of the thought, 
Can you recognize what the thought is, what the message is, notice it, but still not feel mandated to follow it? Okay, yeah, I'm, I don't want to do this, but um, why do I want to do this other thing? Why would I want to exercise today? And even if I'm telling myself, don't do it, do this other thing, can I notice how I'm feeling, my aversion to exercising? Can I hear the thought, notice it, uh, maybe say it aloud? but still say, well, but I'm still committed to going down, getting on the exercise or going out for a run, at least starting it. And without changing the thought, sort of still change the behavior. So that's why it's acceptance. Can you accept these discomforts, the emotional, the cognitive, but still stay committed to your valued behavioral goal? I can feel lousy about doing it. Oh, I really don't wanna do this. It's awful. It's gonna be sweaty and all these things but still get yourself to do it. And that's, again, an unfair characterization of a more elegant way because there's more this philosophy about recognizing, hey, for whatever your reason, your brain is giving you those synapses and not really for whatever reason. It's a very, it's, it's more tied with the behavioral side of language to say, for some reason, these thoughts have been associated with avoidance of that behavior. So just like any other behavior, okay, I before I got on the extra cycle, I would drink, I know chocolate milk is supposed to be healthy for some reason now um, for athletes, but let's just say I drink a gallon of chocolate milk. Now I don't feel like exercising. Well, we might want to change that behavior. Can you wait to drink the gallon of chocolate milk till after you um, exercise? That way you don't use it as a reason. And the same thing with the cognitions. Can we break the connection? You can have these thoughts, but if you start getting on the bike or whatever you do, um, despite those, then they start to weaken and the behavior itself becomes more reinforced and maybe there's some more positive associations with it. So that's a long dissertation on all the complexity that goes into thinking. But I think there are ways to both modify the message, even if we don't buy it. And this is the long game of we might per still procrastinate on it, but then if there is this valuation goal and we can set up more realistic expectations and then maybe more often we can start to, okay, I can do it for at least a mile or 10 minutes or something where in that way we break the association, it will be um, the cognitive piece and that's arm in arm with the emotional piece. You won't want to do it, but can you notice the feelings, label them, recognize them, but also noting okay, this feels uncomfortable, that UGG feeling, but can I still, again, move my arms and legs over to at least get started on something, even if I stop after a minute, or I do that smallest step that I said, okay, I can at least open all the tax envelopes that say important tax document enclosed. If you stop after that, great, you did not procrastinate. Well, that's hardly getting anything done. Well, that's all you said you wanted to do today. So that is fair mission completed, well, maybe not the overall mission, but you're done. Most often though, once we navigate it, it's like, you know what, once I get started, because I think what happens is everything beforehand is anticipation, the fortune telling thoughts. And usually we run, and, and probably more so with ADHD, a negative, a horror movie, if you will. Oh, this is gonna be awful, I'm gonna get stuck, which I would say maybe based on past experience may be true. Well, how would you handle it if you do get stuck? 
Um, but then coming up with at least a possibility, well, if I can sit down and do it for at least two or three minutes, this UG feeling will burn off. I know once I get started. And it's, it is that plea bargaining, and that's the cognitive piece. So it may not change it into, oh, boy, taxes are going to be fun. But it's sort of like I can tolerate this enough to get started and see what happens and see how far I get. So it may not be the most inspirational statement. I want to do a blog on this called The Tyranny of Intrinsic Motivation because I think there's a lot of things that we may not feel, and I don't think intrinsic means naturally, that might be the valuation that there's something in it that we want, but that's that's a definition of the executive functions. We have skin in the game. We want the outcome. Now, sometimes the outcome is a removal of something negative. I just want taxes to be done. I just want the dishwasher to be unloaded. So it may not be the most existentially fulfilling, but there's still a reason to get it done that works for us. So it may take a little more work to get those things done. They may not be intrinsically or at least any intrinsic motivation. It's going to take acknowledgement of all the hassles in order to navigate through to at least get started. So I want to make sure I'm totally getting what you're saying. I know that's a whole lot. Yeah, Hmm. yeah. So I'm just going to like try to reiterate. Yes, you can examine your thoughts, work with your thoughts, question your thoughts. You can do all that reframing work, but it's not nearly so simple as just choosing a, a, new, a new thought. Right. Now, some people can, and it's externalization of motivation, if there are coping cards, that's used a lot in anxiety. So when somebody is calm and maybe they have a history of panic attacks, they can remind themselves, this is my fight flight system. It's natural, but it's uncomfortable, but not dangerous. If I do nothing, it will eventually stop. Uh, Do your breathing exercises. Some almost like, and this is a phrase I'm using a lot more, and I forget if I used it in the book. I'm not sure if it got in there. Think about your future self. So somebody in that case would think about when they're coming up with the coping card, when they're not anxious, think about your anxious self. What messages, what breadcrumbs do you want to drop for yourself then that could be useful reminders that you can look at and just do? And with ADHD, externalizing information and externalizing motivation, there can be these cues or reminders that people may come up with motivational statements that resonate for the individual. And some people say, yeah, I have to shake them up now and then, or this is something that helps with this sort of task, or um, there's a worksheet in the book, the how you don't do things form that is a way to break down all, you know, some of the different elements um, that can help trans overcome procrastination. Nothing's going to do it hundred percent. So there are some ways that these external counterpoints out there that are going, Oh yeah, but I forgot about this. And you know, whatever it is that does it for us, like on my, like on my computer. And so I got like one of those stickers. I saw my daughter with her computer and I said, okay, let me personalize it. Be the kind of person your dog thinks you are. That that's one that I always like that one. So that's just like a little one that I just looked down. Hey, that's a good reminder to be a good person and all that stuff, <laughs> all that stuff. Um, so sometimes these sort of reorientation reminders, like coping cards, these can be helpful. And we could argue, well, that's choosing a thought, but it's also choosing a value 
that we want to express. So the valuation of a task, reminding ourselves, even though, or especially because this is difficult, why do I even want to take this on in the first place, which also draws on motivational interviewing to a degree. Okay, like a lot of uh, research on motivational interviewing and implementation strategies draw on dealing with addictions or at least changing unhealthy, be uh, unhealthy behaviors and following through on healthcare recommendations. We all know they work, um, but they're hassles. We don't feel like doing them. Oh, I'm getting into bed for the evening. I forgot to do my PT, my shoulder exercises or whatever. I'll do them tomorrow. I'll skip a day. Nothing, that won't kill anybody. Um, and how do we follow through on stuff that we actually want to do, but they're hassles or stop doing something. And with addiction, cigarettes or whatever it is, there's also going to be that biological craving. How do you get yourself? And very often it's in um, the stages of change. It's pre-contemplation. I don't even know, I know I should change, I don't know if I want to change. And so part of the questions would be the pros and cons and are you ready to change? It's sort of the opposite. Why, what's in it for you? Why would you even want to change at this point? But it's sort of like running through and all right, why, what is in it for me? And it's more effort to refresh that value that could be a cognitive piece of reminding yourself, why is, is this important to me? It's not going to get us doing it every day, but we're just talking about trying to change the ratio enough that we go, I'm doing this enough that I, got, I, I can do a little better, but I'm also doing well enough right now that I'm, I'm hopeful in the direction I'm moving. So I hope that answered the question a bit about, it's, it's not as simple as just, okay, stop thinking the old way and start thinking the new way. The old way will pop in, um, so you might have to be on guard for it. And, you know, probably there, there might need to be some different reframes as, because even within the stage of change model, there's a difference between getting started, keeping going, and then maintenance once you got it to where you want it to be. And that's also where um, folks with ADHD struggle. It's like, I was doing great for a while, then the gym was closed due to COVID, and now I'm having an awful time. I'm not sure if people are allowed back, don't break any laws or, or guidelines, but um, now I'm having a hard time getting back to where I was. I guess, I just keep thinking as I'm listening to you talk, if I was going to do all these things, I think I'd rather do it with a therapist, whether it was a CBT therapist or someone who did ACT, I'll, I'll, let me situate it. Cognitive behavioral therapy. And Dr. Beck just turned 99 on Saturday. Whoa. Um, and he's, I think, got a book coming out. I mean, he's still active in research. He's an amazing, I think he's still on the shortlist for a Nobel Prize. One of the things that was revolutionary about cognitive behavioral therapy. So at the time, he started studying this in the late 60s. Uh, his first um, book on depression, I think was 1967. I think I remember that correctly. I know I have a copy. So at the time, this 50s and 60s, the two major forms of therapy were behavioral therapy and psychoanalysis. And, and this might be a little unfair. There's always more nuance, but for the story, with the analyst, you had to go to the appropriately trained analyst who could um, interpret things, understand the conflicts, 
that stuff. And with the behavioral therapist, you needed the expert behavioral therapist to understand what was reinforcing different behaviors, help you come up with a behavioral plan. The thing about Beck's cognitive therapy, now it grew out of the behavioral school, but with the cognitions, it was that people can learn to identify and modify them on their own and take more control over how they view things, what they did, and how they felt. Um, so in some ways, it was designed for self-help. It was also designed to train many other, you know, healthcare, behavioral healthcare professionals in how to do it to increase access to services. Um, so there is an element of, and like many self-help books, the book Feeling Good by David Burns is probably among the best-selling self-help books ever for depression. Um, and the notion of that you can get better able to catch these automatic thoughts, identify any distortions, and work them through well enough to consider other behavioral options or maybe shift emotions a bit. And so I would say that maybe some people with relatively, like my understanding, and I'm not expert in it with like life coaching, they may be dealt, you know, apropos of coaching, they're dealing with people who are maybe already well established in a job, but are just foundering in one area or lacking confidence or trying to get to a next level, where maybe it's a little bit of a modification or managing that, that transition to a new role in the short term. And sort of saying, all right, mind reading, you think nobody else likes you as a manager yet? Do you have any evidence? You're doing other people's thinking for them. Stop doing that. Um, and it's like, sometimes that can be enough of one that they go, okay, I'm going to wait until I get a negative review. I'm not going to do that. And again, it might seem. So a case could be made in certain situations. Now, if you're talking about life coaches working with folks with ADHD, and again, this is unfairly lumping everybody in. Some folks with ADHD might go, okay, once I see that I engage in that thought, I can catch that and at least consider an alternative. Um, and I, it doesn't always mean that I don't procrastinate, but I can catch it and I, I, know, I know what I'm dealing with. Now, yeah, so... So that being said, bringing it back to, um, so if somebody says, you know what, I might not even see my negative thoughts or I, I don't think I'm having them or I, it, it seems accurate. And, and that's one case I've made before. A lot of these, it makes sense. Yeah, we, there's a lot of um, negative term. This is something Dave Gore calls me out on a lot. And, and he's probably right. There's, from the early days in depression, there's still a lot of negative terminology, like negative thoughts, even though positive thoughts, gamblers are very positive thinkers. Um, maladaptive thoughts, which just mean it gets in the way of your options, but maladaptive, nobody wants to be maladaptive. But it's, it's just recognizing that it's that initial first thought and first thought isn't always best thought. And is there another way to construe the situation and keep options open or whatever? So, yeah, I would say it can be beneficial um, working with somebody who and sometimes just saying it out loud to somebody or writing it out. It's like it makes a lot of sense in our head 
yeah, this is, this makes perfect sense why I should not work on income taxes today or why I should, I'll work out twice as hard tomorrow and that'll even the books, even though the next day I have less time today than I did yesterday. What was I thinking? Um, well, that's the question to answer. You know, it can be helpful saying it out loud because we go, in my head, it made perfect sense. Now that I'm saying it, I can see some of the errors in it. Um, but that's, that's why even like within the book, talking aloud to ourselves is also a coping strategy we can use sometimes for the emotional labeling, saying aloud what we're feeling helps reduce amygdala functioning, uh, not functioning, um, firing. Um, and also like talking ourselves through, okay, what am I going to do? And what's my plan for right now? Saying it aloud and hearing ourselves say it, it sort of keeps us grounded outside our head and may nothing's perfect, but increase the likelihood that we follow through, through on things. I am so glad you said that because people always laugh at me because I'm like, no, you should really talk to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Say it out loud. <laughs> well, that's, that's exactly what our, our cognitions start from language turned inward. And this is covered in like in Barclay's book on executive functions. And, um, you know, uh, our verbal working memory actually comes from the internalization of language and then our thoughts, they become their own influence on our feelings and behaviors. Think about what our cognitions and our beliefs are. They are not things in our brain. These are from these neural processes. It's not like there's, oh, here's the thinking. Well, there is a, a domain, but all they are are synapse. They're all cells. They're all part of our DNA. Um, but they're odorless, tasteless, invisible, weightless but they are as big as any other influence on our behavior. Um, so being able to recognize them and then say them out loud, and it's a way to make it, you know, inner, they can bounce around in our head, but sometimes saying them out loud, um, writing them out. That's why the coping cards, it's leaving cues for, you know, reading it, even reading it silently, it, it sort of provides us another clue hopefully for following through on whatever it is we want to follow through on or cope with better. Nothing's a guarantee. Nobody's perfect. But um, again, it's just about trying to um, change the ratio in the, in the direction that we want to change it. And, and within this um, self-compassion, recognizing that, you know what, there, there are going to be those days that we go, hey, it's only three o'clock. I'm tired. I'm calling it a day. I, I have a plan for what I'm going to do tomorrow, or I know I may pay for this a little bit tomorrow, but I'm tired. I've been up late. This has been, a, I've been very productive over the next few days, or I feel a touch of something coming on. I need to take care of myself. Or that informed decisions, all procrastination, well, all, all delay or deferment is not necessarily procrastination. Um, we can make informed decisions about it, uh, about looking at the, the long range, the, the long race. Well, that's a perfect segue. It really was a perfect segue because next week when I drop the second part of our conversation, Dr. Ramsey and I are going to talk more specifically about procrastination, the kind of thinking that we do that leads to procrastination and things like procrastivity. He's going to define that for us. Again, he was very generous with his time, so that's going to be a pretty packed episode as well. I think that if you enjoyed this conversation, that you should leave me a review on iTunes. 
Also, I am going to put a link in the show notes for my email list. From what I'm hearing, my emails are basically the only emails that people with ADHD want to open. FYI, I don't send just a list of links that I want you to click on. I actually send you real, fun, entertaining information. Because I don't know about you, but I do not like boring email. I hope your weekend is fabulous. Like I always say, we are stronger together.